First Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three. We've been looking at the uh, epistle of Peter. Epistle is a letter. Another way of saying letter. It's not the wives of the apostles. It's a, a letter, an epistle. There are several epistles in the New Testament uh, written by the apostle Paul, John, uh, Peter, uh, uh, Jude, and James. And, uh, and they're all letters that were written by church leadership to the churches, handwritten and hand-copied, and sent out and delivered by hand. There was no postal service back in those days. The only benefit they had in those days was the Romans had built roads all over their empire, and it made it easier for people to travel back and forth, but they still had to hand carry everything. There was no trains, no planes, no internet. Uh, everything had to be hand copied. There were no printing presses, uh, and, and so it was a slow process. And, and so when this, these letters were written, they, it, would take, it would take a long time for them to get to their destination. And then many times they would say, pass this on. Pass it on to the next church. Like, like this uh, uh, epistle of Peter was written to several churches in the area known as Turkey today. Uh, it was uh, called Asia back in those days. These are, this is the same area that John is writing to in the book of Revelation. Seven churches of Asia, they were all in this area, this geographic area that we know today as Turkey. And yet that, that's where the church expanded into first. And of course we know that the apostles took the gospel as far uh, east as India and as far west as Rome, maybe even Spain. And we know that uh, it went down into Africa because of the Ethiopian eunuch that uh, received the gospel through Philip the evangelist. And then he went on down. He, he was the, uh, the queen of Ethiopia's secretary treasurer. And so the gospel went down and, and, the, and he was the founder of the Coptic church in Egypt, in, e in Ethiopia, that still exists today. And so the gospel spread, but its first primary area of um, affluence was in this area we know now as Turkey. And of course today, Turkey is all Muslim. It was overrun by the, the Muslims. And, uh, uh, and as a result of the Roman purge and the Muslims, many of these churches no longer exist in Asia. They were run off killed off and stamped out uh, over the years. But at this time of this writing, it was a, a very powerful area for the gospel. And the largest church, the largest Christian church in the world at that time was in Ephesus. And Timothy was the pastor of that church. And he was a very young man, but he was the protege of the apostle Paul. And at the time that Timothy was the pastor of that church in Ephesus, it had over 100,000 members. 
and it was being heavily persecuted. And at the time the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, Timothy was in hiding because they had, a, they had a wanted dead or alive posters out for him all over the city of Ephesus because of his, he was the leader of this church that the Romans were trying to eradicate. And, uh, and so Timothy was on the run and hiding when Paul wrote to him. And Paul was in a Roman prison when he wrote Timothy. And Timothy's screaming to Paul, you know, oh, I'm having this hard time, I'm having this hard time. So Paul writes him from the prison in Rome to encourage him. Can you, yeah. I mean, Paul's going through, I mean, it wasn't long before Paul was beheaded, and yet he's writing to encourage his son Timothy to be strong in the Lord and hold out, you know, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold of the promises of God. Uh, you know, that, I mean, he's tell, be not be not overcome by fear because fear fear is torment and and uh, God hadn't given you the spirit of fear but of love and of power and a sound mind. Paul's writing these words from the prison in Rome, and so these guys these guys went through hell on earth. They went through terrific fires of persecution. And yet they, did, they were never bound in their spirit. They were never bound in their, in their, uh, in their faith. Paul said it this way. He said, he said, you can bind me, but the word of God can never be bound. You can put me in prison, but you can't imprison the word of God. And, uh, and so they, they believed in what they were doing, even, even to the point of their own death. And we know that all the apostles uh, were martyred. With the exception of John, and yet they, it wasn't because they didn't try to kill John. They tried to kill John repeatedly. He just wouldn't die. He was, because he had a word from Jesus that he would, he would live to be an old man. Amen. Amen. And he stood on that word through many, many persecutions. They, they boiled him in oil. They shot arrows at him by the best archers in the, in the empire. They, and they missed, and they, and they, they burned him at a stake. You know, one of these things where they put you on a rod, like a pit, barbecue pit. And he just said, turn me over, I think I'm done on this side. And when they're shooting arrows at him, he's laughing at him. Can't y'all do better than that? I heard you were the best in the land. You know, he would just laugh at them. They couldn't kill him. So finally they put him on the Isle of Patmos. A certain death sentence. And Jesus appears to him and says, Hey, write these seven letters down, and uh, when you're finished, I'm going to have you hand deliver them to the, se the seven churches in Asia. And he's, he's a prisoner on an island. There's no way off. And there's no record of how he got off that island. But we know that he did deliver those letters and lived many years after that. How did he get off that island? We don't know. How did Philip all of a sudden appear in a different part of the country? He was translated. You know, maybe John was translated. But, I mean, th these are the characters that are writing this stuff. So how many of you think that we ought to pay attention to what they have to say? And uh, in terms of uh, the end times and the last days, in the minds of these people, they were all living in the last days. They all thought that the coming of the Lord was imminent. 
they all just knew that, the, that it was about to be over. And, uh, and they preached that way. They lived that way. They, 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 they looked beyond their present distresses and circumstances and looked to the Lord and looked to the joy uh, that was coming when the Lord returned with his rewards. They wrote, they wrote in that context, even though that was 2,000 years ago, in their minds, the end is near. And for all of them, the end came. Just like I tell you often, you know, if we live long enough, we're all going to die. Right? So the Lord's either going to come for us all at the same time in the rapture, or he's going to come for you individually. But Jesus is coming for you. I'm telling you, the Lord's coming for you. Either individually or collectively, that's his business. And he did come for every one of them. Amen? They're all in heaven now. They're, I mean, they're all there. And they're in that great cloud of witnesses that's watching us. And they expect us to overcome whatever this life throws at us. Jesus said to the seven churches in Asia, he said, he, he, he said to them that overcome, to those who overcome, will I grant to sit with me in my throne. To those that overcome, will I give a white stone, a new name written. To them that overcome, every benefit and promise of the kingdom is given to the overcomers. And then he says in another part of Revelation that the cowardly and the unbelieving will have their part in the lake of fire with the adulterers, the murderers, and the whoremongers and all that. So God, God has a low opinion of cowardly. And he has a low opinion of unbelieving. And if you're a coward and an unbeliever, <laughs> you're going to the same place the murderer is. You and Jeffrey Dahmer might be cellmates, except he got born again. He's in heaven. And he was a serial killer. He killed Post Toasties and Cheerios. And he's a serial killer. Come on, people. Lighten up. Okay, you're looking pretty serious there. But I'm telling you, you know, God, God expects you to be brave, be bold. How can I be bold? The Lord is with me. Remember, God is working. He's working all things out for our good. Be bold then. Be bold as a lion and go forward in life regardless of what life throws at you. Overcome it. Doesn't matter how many times you get knocked down or you fall down, just get back up and keep going. I mean, it doesn't matter if, if you lose a limb or, or, or an eyeball or something, just keep on going. Just like, a, just like a war veteran who's got those fake legs and those fake arms and, and they run for Congress. You've got to hand it to those people. Pun not intended. You've got you you to vote for people like that. Because a lot of folks just quit. They're missing an arm, missing a leg, and they think, well, my life is over. Uh, not, not a trooper. Amen? Not a real trooper. And you're a trooper in the army of God. Can you say amen? amen. Well, that's my introduction. And, uh, and over in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 1, we're getting, we're getting to the heart of this letter. 
Now it's got five chapters. Of course, we understand that when the letter was originally written, it was written in letter form. It didn't have chapters and verses. The chapters and verses are added for, so that we can find our place when we're talking about it. But in the heart of this letter, right in the middle, there's two chapters before, two chapters after. This is the heart of the letter. He gets down to where the rubber meets the road. He's talking about being an overcomer. He's talking about how we're to live our lives in the face of persecution, in the face of tribulation, in the face of hardships and difficulties and pressures. He expects us to overcome. Turn to somebody and say, God expects you to overcome. All right? In the first part of this chapter, he's talking about your home, your home life. God expects you to be an overcomer at home. You know, I know a lot of folks, you know, they, they, they're successful at work, they're successful at church, they're successful out, out, in the, out in the world, but when it comes to home, they're failures. I had a doctor tell me that recently. She said, you know, I, I'm a doctor, and, and you know, I'm, I'm successful, and I've got my own practice and all this kind of stuff, but uh, my personal life is a mess. And there are a lot of folks like that. Albert Einstein was kind of like that, you know. He couldn't even comb his hair. He was a brilliant, brilliant physicist. He was world-renowned. But, you know, he was missing a few things when it came to home. And here, Peter is, is telling us that our home life needs to be in order. Our home life needs to be victorious. And he starts off with a very familiar passage of Scripture that we all love dearly. And I know all you men have it underlined in your Bibles. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Everybody say hallelujah. Come on, ladies, you missed your chance. You wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Now, that word subjection is a word from the Greek H-U-P-O-T-A-S-S-O, uh, hupotasso. -S -S and it, it means to place oneself under obedience. It's a voluntary yielding of yourself to another. Now, this week we're going to tie the knot for a couple and there's and in order for this marriage to work there has to be there has to be a willingness on the part of both of them to yield to each other marriage is about yielding it's not about dominance it's not about alpha versus beta versus zeta you know it's 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 not about that at all it's not about Who's going to be in charge here? It's about who, who's, going to, who's going to yield to God's plan. Amen. See, God has a plan for every married couple, every home. He has a plan. God's plan does not uh, allow for the children to run the house. Amen. I've told my kids many times as they were growing up, I'm the dog, you're the tail. 
I'll tell you when to wag. Don't, don't let the tail wag the dog. How many of you like that? Now you like that because we're talking about the kids. But we're talking about wives first, right? Now notice what he says about the power, the power of a wife yielding to her husband and being obedient to her husband. There's power in it. Everybody say there's power in yielding. If any obey not the word, if you have a husband that does not obey the word, they also may without the word, because they're not going to listen to the word, quit quoting scriptures at them, quit beating them over the head with your Bible. They're not, they don't believe the word, but they still can be won by the conversation or the lifestyle of the wife. You see, a wife who yields to her husband has a winning lifestyle. She has an overcoming lifestyle. The winning position for a wife is to be submissive to her husband. Now, that goes contrary to what people in the world think. But how many of you see it here? You see it here in the scripture. If I'm going to win my husband, if I'm going to if I'm going to overcome in our marriage, I need to do that. I need to do it God's way. I need to believe in the power of submission. While they behold your chaste conversation, conversation is a lifestyle, but it includes your words, coupled with fear. That word fear there is reverence, respect. Who's adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of Victoria's Secret. Oh, plating the hair, wearing of gold, or putting on of apparel. See, it's not what you put on the outside. But let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. The word meek means power under control or freedom that is restrained voluntarily. Meekness doesn't mean weakness. It just means, yeah, I could fight back. I could stand up for my rights. But I'm going to submit because I believe in the power of submission. The ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women, also who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. And I might just add here, underline the word own husband. There's no place in the Bible, ladies, that says you have to submit to any other man. The only man that you are required to submit to is your own husband. Not the pastor. Not your father-in-law. <laughs> That's liberating in itself, isn't it? We want the marriage to work. God wants the marriage to work. And this, this is how you overcome in your personal life. 
even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now she called him Lord. Notice that's not capitalized. If it's capitalized, it would be uh, Jehovah. It represents the word Jehovah. You don't call it, she didn't call Abraham God. Abraham wasn't her God. She called him Lord in the sense that uh, uh, we would teach our ch children to say, yes, sir, no, sir. It's, it's uh, a respectful term. You, you see that? She showed him reverence. She showed him respect. Whose daughters you are as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. So he's telling the wives, if you will voluntarily submit to your husband and obey, let him, let him lead, you will win in that relationship. You'll be a winner in that relationship. And then verse 7, he says, likewise. Everybody say, likewise. Now, what in the world does likewise mean? It means after the same manner, in the same way. So guess what, husbands? You're supposed to yield to your wife. There, it's a mutual submission. It's a mutual yielding. Likewise, you husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. That word for dwell is a very long Greek word that says that means to prepare in advance. In other words, you give forethought. Husbands, think first. Now, you all know that's a big request for us to have to think first. See, Christians are not reactionaries. Christians respond after thought. When something happens to a Christian, you're supposed to ask yourself, hmm, what am I supposed to think about this? And how am I supposed to respond to this? You don't just knee-jerk react. The flesh has a knee-jerk reaction, but the spirit, the spirit causes you to follow thought. You think it through before you act. You think about what you're going to say before you say it. Words are powerful. Words can wound. Words can kill. And words can bring life. So the husband is, is instructed to prepare in advance with his wife according to knowledge. And that word knowledge is the word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, -S, where we get our word science. Now what is science? Science is where you study something to know it. You learn by study. And then what science is? I'm not talking about the kind of science they're using today in our, you know, our government. That's political science. But science is, is, is a discipline. Science is a discipline that studies something in order to know it better. Putting it under a microscope. Taking it to the lab, tearing it apart, putting it back together. I mean, really examining it. So he's saying to the husbands, 
you dwell or you prepare in advance according to scientific study of your wife. Give honor, and that's respect to the highest degree, unto your wife as unto the weaker or finer vessel. Not weak in the sense of powerless, but weak in the sense of finer, like china, crystal. You see, when God made Adam, he took some dirt, made mud out of it, and squeezed Adam together. Y'all remember that? Adam's a clay pot. But when he made woman, he put Adam to sleep and took the essence of the man and finely tuned and fashioned and formed a woman. The woman is like fine china. The woman is like crystal. Where do you put your china? Where do you put your crystal? You put it in a cabinet on display and you don't let anybody touch it. It's not supposed to be used for Thursday lunch. That's what the paper plates are for. The fine china, the fine crystal is only to be taken out in, in, in the, at the highest, most important meals in the family, like Thanksgiving or a, a, a bridal shower or something like that. And that's the wife. The wife, the man's the clay pot, and the wife is the crystal glass. You see that? Now, the husband is to very... Very scientifically, he's, he, he's, he's to study his wife, know her very well, and prepare very carefully in advance everything he does with her and everything he says to her, and treat her like she's finery. Amen. Amen. Now, what's, what's going what's gonna to be the result? A harmonious relationship. And in a harmonious relationship, they become heirs together of the grace of life, and their prayers are not hindered. God will hear your prayers. If any two of you shall agree together on earth, that's not as easy as it sounds. Because we have an enemy, the devil, and we have an other enemy, the flesh, and we have another enemy, the world. The devil, the world, and the flesh work constantly to bring disunion and disunity in your home. And God expects you to overcome it, and you're going to only overcome it by doing it God's way. You're not going to overcome the devil, the world, and your flesh by Handling it in the flesh. You have to do it God's way in the spirit. And once you do, your prayers will be heard. There is the reason why the devil hates marriages. And the devil hates families. Because this, this, once this is accomplished, once this unity is accomplished between a husband and wife, it carries over into the children. Harmony in the household uh, uh, is the most powerful. The unity of a, of a married couple is the most powerful force known in the universe. Have you noticed how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are in total agreement, are in total unity all the time, and they totally submit to one another? Jesus obeyed the Father. 
But you know what? He learned obedience by, by submitting himself to Joseph and Mary. Amen. And as he's growing up, he, he submitted, voluntarily submitted himself to Joseph and Mary. And the Bible says he grew in the stature. He grew in, in, in wisdom. And when it came down to brass tacks in our, our lives, our future, our destiny was dependent on the outcome, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That was all accomplished by a voluntary submission. And that's the example for husbands and wives and children. And when the home comes into that kind of order, it is a powerful force that cannot be defeated. You will overcome no matter what life throws at you. How many of you believe that? Do you believe it enough to endeavor to have that in your own relationships? God expects you to be an overcomer at home. And then that spills over into the, uh, the next verse, uh, verse 8. Finally, be ye all of one mind. Now, he's talking to the whole church family. Be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. And that doesn't mean what the world thinks it means. Pitiful means just be filled with pity. And that's, that's the opposite of criticism, opposite of condemnation. When you're, when you're full of pity for someone, you're offering yourself to help them up. You're reaching out. You're extending a hand to them that are cast down in order to lift them up. Remember, Jesus was a lifter. Everybody he encountered, he showed them pity and mercy, and he lifted them up. No matter what they'd done, he lifted them up. And he said, anyone who comes to me I'm gonna, is going to get that response from me. Anybody that comes from me, I'm going to lift them up. Amen? And he says, that's the way we're supposed to treat each other. Be courteous. It doesn't matter who's who in the church. Be courteous to each other. Amen? I'm really glad I go to a church like this. I really am. I'm really glad to go to a church that sh where people show love to each other. They're courteous to each other. They open doors for each other. They greet one another. They, they prefer one another. I, I mean, th there's more to being a great church than just having a lot of people and a lot of money. Amen. You can be a great church. And, and, and you know what makes a great family? 25 kids? No, that's not what makes a great family. What makes a great family is a, is a family that loves each other and that gets along with each other. Amen? And so I'm, I'm thankful that we have a great family here at, at Cornerstone Church. Praise the Lord. And if you're watching on the, on the, on the video, you're welcome to come. We'll, we'll accept you. Red and yellow, black and white, you're precious in our sight too. Amen? Uh, we, we are full of mercy and kindness, uh, and we'll show you courtesy. Can the church say amen? amen. 
not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing. That word railing means verbal abuse. Verbal abuse. Slander. Reviling. We don't do that. We don't do that to each other. We don't put each other down. We don't cut each other to shreds. Amen? Amen. Our words are words of life. We, we build people up. Amen? Uh, what, what, what's a, you know, the, the world is filled with abusive fathers. You know, a lot of people out there in the world, they have real daddy issues because their fathers were abusive, either physically abusive or verbally abusive. or, or uh, I mean, there's all kinds of ways to be abusive, and that's just basically don't be a good person. And don't treat the people around you very well. Amen? But, uh, you know, I, I think about my father. My father was a used car salesman. And he never made more than $5,000 in a year in his whole life. So he wasn't a... Uh, he, he didn't sell the newer used cars. He sold... The $50 cars, the $100 cars, $150. Of course, back then, you could buy a decent car for $150. My first car was $30, and there was nothing wrong with it. It was a 51 Plymouth, and it had nothing wrong with it. It was immaculate, clean, everything. Flathead six-cylinder engine, and uh, it would go like nobody's business. had good tires, good, good everything, 30 bucks. Can't do that now, can you, Jimmy? No. And you can't even buy a 51 Plymouth now for that kind of money. Can't buy a tire for that kind of money. Amen? But I, I, I'm telling you, my dad, my dad he, he lived poorly. He considered himself poor. He would tell us things like, I grew up with these sayings, poor folks have poor ways. We can't afford that. I wanted to join the Cub Scouts. We can't afford it. I said, Dad, they don't charge anything to join. He said, got to buy a uniform, right? And I said, well, yeah, can't afford it. I said, I want to play an instrument in the band. He says, you can play any instrument they have, but I can't afford to buy you one. So I picked the drums. And you should have heard him holler when I came home and said, hey, the band director says I got to buy my own drumsticks. What? I mean, I, but I didn't know, I, I, I really didn't feel poor. You know why I didn't feel poor? Because that man loved me. He never railed on us. He never verbally abused us. I could make straight A report cards, or I could make straight Fs, and he never treated me any different. To the point that, you know, I thought, well, he don't care what kind of grade I make. And I had to make the decision to make good grades because I, I wanted to feel good about myself because my dad never put pressure on me like that. He was just an old cotton picker who graduated the eighth grade. I mean, but he was kind. I never heard him raise his voice at my mother. Never heard him and my mother argue. We lived in a three-bedroom, one-bathroom house with paper-thin walls, and I never heard my dad and my mother argue. If they argued, they must have gotten a car and went somewhere because we never heard them argue. We heard them do other things, but we never heard them argue. 
We thought for a long time they were having regular wrestling matches. But they never, I never saw a display of anger or, or disgust or hatred. And, and I, I remember watching my dad out in the backyard sitting on a stump. And all of us kids were playing, and we had the neighborhood kids there, and they were all playing, and we were running back and forth, and just, just, I mean, just, and I looked over at my dad, and I saw this, this look of perfect contentment and perfect joy, and he was just eating it up. He just loved his family. And so I didn't grow up with these daddy issues, even though we were poor. I didn't feel poor. I still don't feel poor. And see, what made that man so good? When he got home from World War II, the first Sunday he was home, he walked down to the altar and gave his life to Jesus. And just a few months later, he married my mother. And there was not one day of his life with his wife and children where he was not a Christian. He meant it. He was an overcomer at home. And that's where it counts. Can you say amen? Now, I don't know why I went on and on about my dad, but, uh, you know, when you have a, such a great dad like that, you know, you can't help but uh, brag on him once in a while. And, of course, then my mother, you know, that's a different story. Uh, she was a Bible thumper. She was a tongue-talking, singing, worshiping, Bible talker. And, and uh, you know, whenever we got out of line, she would grab me by the hair and pull me up. That's why I'm kind of thin on top. And uh, my, my, my brother, you know, she'd grab him by the ears. He's, so he's got real long earlobes. And, uh, you know, as, you know, and the only cuss word I ever heard out of either one of my parents was from my spirit-filled, tongue-talking, Bible-thumping mother. Never heard my dad say a cuss word. But you know five kids can push a woman to her limits. And we did hear her utter a word one time. And uh, we knew something was wrong and something was coming. Praise the Lord. And she's, she's a saint. She's in heaven too. Praise the Lord. What am I saying all this? If you don't overcome at home, then the church family will not be overcoming. We can't go, we can't go as a church, we can't go past the homes that are represented here. We can't grow past what you are at home. Because you at home is what makes the church the church. Amen? Amen? So we have to overcome at home and we have to overcome at church. That's the only way we're going to overcome in society. Because society's against us. And he does, he does talk about that in, in uh, verse 13. He says, Who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? Who can hurt you if you're doing right? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody. But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. 
but sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, our overcoming in life is going to cause people to ask questions. How do you do it? Having a good conscience, that's verse 16, underline those words. Having a good conscience, that's so important. Over in 1 John, uh, John writes that if your conscience bothers you, you're not going to have any faith. It, faith requires you to have a clear conscience. If your conscience doesn't bother you, then you can believe that whatever you ask of God, you're going to get. Amen. It's important to have a good conscience, clear conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. This is common sense. For Christ also has suffered for sins. How many of you know Jesus suffered for sins? But they weren't his. They weren't his. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached under the spirits in prison. Now who were they? Who, who were the spirits that he preached to in prison? This is when he died and went into the, other, uh, the inner parts of the earth. He preached to somebody down there. Well, he tells us who he preached to. Verse 20, which sometime were disobedience when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was a preparing, that was about 120 years, wherein few, that is, only eight souls were saved by water. So the people he preached to were the people that listened to Noah preached but didn't believe him. They're still around. They're still there. They didn't get to go to heaven. They didn't get in the ark. They perished in the flood. And when Jesus, between the time he was crucified and the time he rose again, Jesus wasn't just laying in a tomb. He was busy. He preached to the, he preached to the fallen angels that were in, in, uh, imprisoned in Tartarus. And then he preached to these people who rejected the gospel of Noah, and then he went and preached to paradise, those who believed him, and he led them out of there and took them to heaven with him. And then he rose from the dead. Y'all thought he was just laying around in a tomb. No, he was busy. Busy three days. What was Jesus doing when he was dead? Preaching. He was preaching. Anybody ask you that from now on, you know. What was Jesus doing when he was dead? He was preaching. Some people think he went to the flames of hell and suffered and had to, had to, had to fight the devil and, and get, you know, all that stuff. Well, you know, it makes a good song, a Carmen song. Might make a good movie, but it's not true. Jesus did not go to the flames of hell. He preached to those that were in captivity, and he preached to those in paradise, and he, he did not suffer in hell. You see, our, our, our salvation is blood-bought, yeah. not hell-wrought. 
And when Jesus on the cross said it is finished, it was finished on the cross. And when he said, into thy hands, Father, I commend my spirit, he didn't give his spirit to the devil to drag him into hell. He gave his spirit to God Almighty. Our salvation was finished and complete when he said it is finished. And then he went preaching. Amen. Then he went preaching. Everybody say, Jesus went preaching. Okay, now I know some folks are going to disagree with that. You know, if you have a, uh, uh, some of these Bibles that we use as reference Bibles, a lot of them don't agree with me, and I don't agree with them, so we, we love each other anyway, okay? But I'm going to preach what I, what I think the Bible says. Now, he talks about baptism. The like figure whereunto even baptism does also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. There it is again. Underline it. The answer of a good conscience toward God. Some folks think, well, pastor, when I was in the Methodist church, they sprinkled me. Then I got into the Baptist church, and they said I had to be dunked. And then I come over to your church, do I have to get baptized again? You know what my question is always to these people? What does your conscience say? Well, pastor, I got baptized in the Pentecostal Holiness Church, and uh, they said you got to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And then I come over to the Assembly of God, and they say you got to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. What do you say? And I say, what does your conscience say? Because the purpose of the whole thing is that you'll have a, the answer of a good conscience before God. Usually the Methodists want to get baptized again. That's why they're asking the question. They feel their conscience says, I want to do it right. But I don't tell them that. I, w I let their conscience tell them. Because the whole purpose, oh, we got to get baptized in running water. No, you got to get baptized in still water. No, we got to have muddy water. Remember, Naaman had to go down and get, you know, baptized seven times. You got to go under seven times. Oh, no, you got to go to Israel and get baptized in the Jordan River. Oh, no, 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 no. You got to get baptized by, a, by an ordained minister. Where does it say that? You know where it says that? It says that in the IRS regulations of 501c3 corporations. It does not say that in the Bible. In the Bible, any believer can baptize another believer. Remember Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? Philip wasn't an ordained preacher. He was a deacon turned evangelist. You know what you need to be baptized? Water. <laughs> And it doesn't have to be running water. That was, there, that was rain water off in the ditch or next to the highway. It was ditch water. Probably had a crocodile in it. Anyway, but, but you see, it, the whole purpose of this all is your conscience. The answer of a good conscience. I can't emphasize how important that is. Because it frees your faith. You see, wife, if you're not a good wife to your husband, how can you in faith believe for his salvation? Children, if you're not obedient to your parents, 
How can you have faith to live a long life and, be, and, and prosper? You're violating the promise of God. You're, you're violating the scripture. The first commandment with promise. Obey thy father and thy mother, and it shall be well with thee, and thou shalt have long life upon the earth. If you don't obey your parents, how can you have faith for a long life? I'm just asking. That's, why, that's how important your conscience is. Everybody say, my conscience is important. Okay, we're going to have to close here, but I want you to move over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 1, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Right in the middle of all of this is a declaration of what's acceptable in God's sight. And that's that you live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. See, we need to overcome at home. If we expect to overcome out there, we've got to be overcomers here. Amen? Praise God. Where strife and contention are found. The Bible says, there is what? Every evil, work. every evil work. Where strife and contention exist, there is every evil work. Remember that, you married couples. Remember that, families. Remember that, church. Where strife and contention is, there is every evil work. God's will is that we dwell together in unity, in peace. Amen?